Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. And he did all of these demonstrations and development um, from his own purse. So he was he was funding the development of of the rifle itself from his own pocket, up until a point where the government and and the army thought this is this is an interesting concept. This this could this could be a game changer. That's Matthew Moss, an expert on 18th century firearms, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publisher of the new book, Daniel Morgan, A Revolutionary Life, by Albert Louis Zamboni. Available now. Thank you for joining us again today here on Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. One of the wonderful things about history, and especially the 18th century, is the fact that the 18th century colonial America and the Revolutionary period is one of the most complicated, multifaceted, and complex time periods in American history. There are numerous stones that remain unturned, and each time that a historian takes the chance and turns one of those stones over, we inevitably learn something new, and we understand the time period better. This includes social history, this includes cultural history, and it also includes, maybe you could say, the history of technology of the age. Now, because we are focusing on this podcast, on the uh, War of the American Revolution, technology that we'll focus on will primarily be military technology. On today's episode, we're joined by a historian named Matthew Moss. Matthew Moss maintains his own website on 18th century firearms, uh, complete with audio and visual aids, called armorersbench.com. And he's been good enough to write a few articles for us here at the Journal of the American Revolution. Now, for me personally, I don't have a great understanding of firearms in the detail that Matthew does. I know the basics, but Matthew comes to this with an expert's eye. He understands the technical specifications of each weapon, and we're going to talk today about trying to improve on those weapons in the middle of a war. Now, one of the great things, I think, about firearms in general is that if you go all the way back to the beginning of the firearm to now, the design is basically the same. Yes, we've given it more bells and whistles, we've made guns shoot faster and further, but the basic fundamental mechanics of taking a shot haven't really changed much in the last 500 years. Matthew goes into that today. So anytime you can tweak, even in a small measure, the mechanics of a weapon, it could mean all the difference, especially in the midst of a war. Today we'll talk about a man named Patrick Ferguson. He's very famous for his later military exploits on the field of battle. 
But Matthew will focus on an innovation uh, to the British musket called the screw plug breech loading rifle. As, as Matthew will talk about, Ferguson did not invent this system, but he did improve on it. And today, because the vast majority of weapons used, at least in war, are breech loading, clearly he did something right. For my friends who are black powder hunters, of course, you would say, well, not all guns are breech loading, I understand that. So Matthew comes to us from the UK. That means he gives us a much needed alternative viewpoint on this war and its importance. And he tells an amazing story. In the midst of pushing his rifle forward, promoting his rifle, Ferguson will not only meet the great uh, high-ranking officers of the British High Command, he'll even meet the king himself. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview with Matthew Moss. Matthew Moss, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. If you could, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, I'm a military historian. Um, I have degrees from the universities of Liverpool and Chester in history and military history. Um, and I write about predominantly about the development of small arms and their use throughout history. When did you first become interested in 18th century firearms? Um, initially, I, I mean, I've written about all sorts of aspects of history, from social history through to nuclear conflict history through to um, the American Revolution. Um, I guess my first inkling that I was interested in small arms history firearms specifically um came probably i don't know maybe um i'd say as, as a child i used to watch the history channel a lot with my granddad and um we used to watch this show called tales of the gun which was uh sort of a, a series on the history channel that told the history of firearms and that really captured my imagination and um i guess from then on it's sort of been at the back of my mind but as a, an undergraduate, I, I wrote about mostly about social history, and then I sort of focused on military history for my um, final dissertation. It wasn't until I did my master's um, that I really focused in on firearms history, and I, I wrote my master's on a, um, a British uh, program to develop a, a rifle in the Cold War. Patrick Ferguson is a name we're going to hear a lot today. He's the central figure in your article. Uh, tell us a little bit about his life. Yeah, um, Ferguson's a really interesting character. Um, Scottish, born in Aberdeenshire in the uh, 1740s, uh, minor landed gentry. Um, he's an interesting character because he combines not only being a soldier, but also an inventor. So he's interested in firearms um, throughout his career. Uh, he was trained as an engineer. Well, he, he attended uh, Britain's Engineering College. Uh, one of the first military colleges. So he was an intelligent officer. And also he was a light infantry officer, which is important because light infantry officers ha had to think individually. They had to think uh, on their feet. They had to improvise and know how to fight in more complex situations than just in traditional 18th, uh, 18th century, 19th century linear line tactics, that kind of thing. Ferguson, as you mentioned, will be a commander of light infantry during the war for those not familiar could you describe what a light infantryman does light infantry differs from what we normally think of as 18th and 19th century uh 
military tactics in that they don't fight typically in line. So we have these visions of men in two, three ranks, maybe a hundred yards, normally less apart from one another, firing volleys at, at, at the weather command. Light infantry didn't fight like that. They fought as individuals and pairs. So um, typically they would break up into smaller groups and they would uh, fight on the flanks during a larger battle or head of main bodies. They were outside of actual battles themselves. They were more typically scouts. They would patrol. They would provide pickets to make sure that the enemy um, went nearby. They would also counter enemy patrols. So they were fighting what the French called the Petit Guerre, which is the small war. Um, and it developed out of the previous conflict in North America, the French and Indian War. And it was a, a style of fighting that was... Um, very American in its uh, inception. So what that what that means is basically um, it developed from Indian fighting. Now uh, Native Americans have, have had a very specific way of fighting on the northeast coast of America. So they'd fight in small groups. They rarely had pitched battles. It was raiding tactics, um, fast short battles, uh, especially once Europeans introduced firearms. Um, so European light infantry, especially British light infantry and French to a degree, because obviously they had their own Native American allies, um, they learned quickly. And throughout the, the uh, French and Indian War, light infantry tactics developed and the British took these on board quite significantly. Um, throughout the conflict, they raised a number of units, um, Gage's Light Armed Foot, uh, Rogers Rangers, they're probably the most famous, um, and they they fought in this light infantry tactic, which favoured the wooded terrain that they were in. They were actually fighting in and operating in. Um, so if you're if you're fighting in wooded country, you can't fight in a line. It's it's very difficult to fight in a line. Wooded country um, is really useful um, for ambushes. You can ambush small and large bodies. Uh, Braddock's uh, uh, ambush um, in 1754 is a perfect example of that um, where the French and their Native American allies basically ambushed a British column that was marching through woodland along a track and almost decimated the force. So light infantry tactics combine the individuality of the soldier with uh, the tactics of fighting from cover using uh the landscape for concealment um, and more typically aimed shots. So this is where the rifle itself comes in. Uh, uh, during the French and Indian War, the majority of light infantry were obviously armed with um, smoothbore muskets, but um, there were obviously riflemen within within those groups, but they weren't typically armed with rifles at that point. Um, the vision of the American frontiersman with his long rifle um is, is a powerful one, but at this point, the the musket was still the predominant weapon of the infantryman, be he a line infantryman or a light infantryman. What was the typical firearm used by the British Army in the 1770s? What were its strengths and how would you describe its weaknesses? Mm -hmm. uh, the primary weapon of the infantryman in the 17th, well, from the 16th century, 15th, 16th century onwards, um, becoming... Uh, more and more important, uh, 
offsetting the pike as the predominant weapon of the infantryman um, is the smoothbore musket. And that's a weapon that doesn't have a rifle barrel, so there's no spirals in the groove. Uh, and what rifling does is it imparts spin on a bullet, which gives it uh, aerodynamic accuracy inherently. So a musket is uh, loaded from the muzzle. So powder and ball are put down the barrel, and then uh, powder is added to the flintlock. And these are um, typically much quicker to load than a rifle would be. As I mentioned, a rifle has spiral grooves. And what spiral grooves do is, obviously, they impart the spin on the ball, but they also become encumbered with fouling from the gunpowder. So if you're firing a rifle uh, repeatedly, uh, over a, over a short period, the grooves become fouled, and this this makes uh, loading and firing more difficult. So it slows down an infantryman's rate of fire. So the benefit, the main benefit, while accuracy of a musket, a smoothbore musket, is um, significantly less than that of a rifle, is that it can be loaded rapidly. So you can get a, a good trained infantryman during the 18th century can get three rounds a minute off. A rifleman maybe one, well definitely one, but maybe two um, within the same period of time. So if you're in a line battle and volume of fire is the key element, then pouring on fire onto your enemy, which is maybe 50, 100 yards away, where you don't have to worry about accuracy as much as you would at longer ranges, then a musket is the ideal weapon for an infantryman that's firing massed fire. But with a light infantryman, uh, it occurred to many that rifles would be uh, better suited so while in, like infantry fights might not have taken place across distances of more than 100 yards as well you're firing at people that are like yourself hidden behind cover or um are moving around so you haven't got a mass target to fire at so more accuracy does help in that so a smoothbore has the advantages of rapidity of loading and fire but the, its main drawback is its accuracy and its lack of there. We're all pretty familiar at this point with the muzzle-loading musket. It's it's timeless uh, in many ways. Ferguson was experimenting with a breech loader. Could you talk about what that mechanism was and how it worked? So the screw plug, um, what it allows um, the weapon to do is load from the breech end rather than the muzzle end. So um, all modern firearms load from the breech. Uh, that, that's, that's how modern firearms work, as, as most will know. Um, but in the 18th century, the norm was for muzzle loaders for both rifles and muskets. It wasn't until the, um, the development of breech loading that fire, firearms could start firing more rapidly. Um, so the breech plug allowed Ferguson's rifle to be loaded from the breech more rapidly than a musket could be. So this gave not only accurate fire, but also rapid fire. So that was the cutting edge part of Ferguson's idea to combine the two. And as you say, he wasn't the designer and the inventor of the concept of a breech loader, or in fact, even the tape, the, um, the screw plug breech. But he did take the the idea and put it into a military application rather than uh, a civilian hunting application. So there's a number of people, um, 
Shamet, who originally developed the system. Um, and then there were a number of people that built on it, like Bidet and um, John Warsop. So the, there were these um, firearms manufacturers, um, gunsmiths that predated Ferguson, who developed the concept of a screw breech as early as, seven, as, as early as the 1720s. So what Ferguson did was, in his own designs, he was aiming to make uh, the, the plug and screw uh, more reliable. So if you're if you're unscrewing something, it's obviously going to bind as it gets dirty. And what he wanted to do was avoid the fouling from the gunpowder getting into the screws of of the thread, um, the thread of the screw rather, and binding up the action so it's unusable. So he in his in his um, 1776 pattern, he. Uh, lays out ideas for a chamber that fouling will go into and grooves that will move the fouling out of the action or away from the, the threads themselves. So that's a little bit technical, but what the way the, the rifle actually works, and I, I have a video showing the rifle itself um, on my website, um, it, the way the actual system works is the rifleman unscrews the breech now the breech moves perpendicularly through the rifle so it's a 90 degree angle to the actual barrel itself and the plug is attached to a trigger guard which acts as a lever so this is turned uh, in a uh, clockwise direction and within one turn the 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 thread will descend enough to allow powder and then ball to be placed into the breech directly rather than into the breech from the muzzle end. So you get that rapidity of not having to ram a ball down with a ramrod. You can push the excess powder uh, into the, the actual uh, flintlock firing um, flintlock uh, pan as well. So you get this system where if you want to fire rapidly, you can do. But interestingly, Ferguson's focus with the rifle wasn't actually rapidity of fire. Um, although during demonstrations he did fire up to seven rounds within a minute. Um, what he wanted to focus on was the ability to load from the breach without having to expose the infantryman to fire. So you could load from cover. It's very difficult to load a muzzle-loading musket lying down because you have to take the ramrod out and, and push the ball and, bullet, uh, ball and powder down the barrel. Um, and things don't really want to move when you're lying horizontally. But if if you're if you're lying on the uh, on your back or behind a tree, it's much easier to tilt the rifle down, pour in your uh, put your ball in, pour in the powder behind it, and close up the breech behind it, um, and then you can fire much more rapidly from cover. But it was it was loading quickly, but not to fire. Um, not to fire rapidly because you want to load quickly in order to give yourself the opportunity to find the next target. You aren't trying to pour in a massive fire as line infantry were. One of the things I love about this article is the enormous amount of very important people that Ferguson meets in his quest to get this gun into action. Uh, could you talk about the events of June 1st, 1776? Yeah. So... In order to get his rifle into service, Ferguson recognizes that he needs to show it to the, the most important people, the most influential, pe influential people. 
So what he does is he approaches um, the Lieutenant General of Ordnance, Lieutenant General, uh, the Adjutant General, and um, generals with the, uh, the Royal Artillery. These are all departments that are important in getting new weapons adopted. So he meets with Lord Townsend, um, and he meets with uh, General Lord Amherst and uh, and Lieutenant General Edward Harvey, the Adjutant General. And what he does is he, he demonstrates his rifle um, in what can only be described as the least helpful conditions possible. So it's uh, it's it's described in in accounts uh, of of the actual demonstration that it, it, he was under all the disadvantages of heavy rain and high winds. Um, so he's he's operating a rifle which relies on a spark to ignite powder in gusty wet weather, which is not ideal. And the demonstration he puts on is um, really impressive. So he. He fires um, a target about 200 yards away and he he moves and advances. So he's not firing from a static position as well. He demonstrates a number of, of applications. So he'll f- he fires for accuracy and he engages a target 200 yards away. And then he'll switch to, to advancing forward and he's loading and firing as he's advancing. Now, this is really difficult with a, a muzzle loader. Um, because obviously you have to withdraw the ramrod and that's a whole separate movement. But with the, the breech loader, you can have the weapon in front of your face. You can see what you're doing. You can load much more easily and he's moving forward and firing. So he's advancing it. They, they think about four miles an hour while firing. So they have this, um, account in, uh, the gentleman's magazine of London where it describes just how fast he's moving across ground. So he's walking at a, a, a fair pace and he's still hitting the target. And then what he does is he takes a, a bottle of water and he pours it into the pan and barrel. And in less than a half a minute, 30 seconds, he gets the rifle firing again. And he's able to do this because he's pouring the water over the closed action. And the sealed nature of the action from the screw breech means the water doesn't get in and soak the powder. And if the powder got wet, he'd have to take that powder out and reload. So that's another positive of, of his action is that it performs well in wet weather, which um, contemporary muskets don't because you're pouring powder in and there's, there's a much more, um, there's a greater window for the powder to get wet while you're loading a muzzle loader. Um, obviously, this is a really impressive um, display of shooting and there's uh, at the end of it, he fires um, from his back, which is um, an unconventional stance for for an infantryman, obviously. But he's firing from the ground and he's hitting the bullseye a hundred yards away. Um, and this really impressed those present, and it it gave impetus and momentum to his his campaign to get his rifle adopted. And he did all of these demonstrations and development. Um, from his own purse so he was he was funding the development of of the rifle itself um from his own pocket up until a point where the government and and the army thought this is this is an interesting concept this this could this could be a game changer so 
I think what I say in in the article is um, um, that Ferguson's rifle is a force multiplier. It it gives the soldier armed with it the ability to to amplify his abilities because he's able to fire more accurately and um, from cover, so he's protecting himself and obviously more rapidly too. After that day, that demonstration, what do British officials do? So he's commissioned to produce uh, 100 rifles. And what happens is um, four gun makers are uh, contracted to produce the parts of these rifles and assemble them. And uh, Ferguson himself uh, acts as overseer and he's the inspector. And all of the military guns had his own personal um, Mark FP, uh, for, uh, sorry, PF for Patrick Ferguson on the actual, um, on the top of the rifles. So he, he was quality control. He was making sure that um, the guns that were being produced were uh, suitable for service. So they quickly found that a straight breech plug um, wasn't uh, as reliable as a slightly tapered plug. So what they did was they tapered the plug and then cut the threads into it. So that allowed it to move up much more freely. Um, the taper was only only really um, rather minute. It wasn't a, a noticeable taper, but it was enough to, to help uh, prevent it from binding when it got uh, fouled, which was one of Ferguson's main concerns, obviously. Your article states that Ferguson will eventually actually get to meet the king and provide a demonstration for him. Could you talk about that day? So um, I believe it was at Windsor and there is an account um, written by Ferguson himself um, where he, he describes uh, firing in front of the king and he'd, he'd he put on much the same show as he had for um, uh, he put on much the same show as he had for the uh, for the the generals we mentioned earlier. So he um, he he fired while moving and he fired at, um, at targets three hundred yards away. So that's an extreme distance for anyone who's used to seeing a, a muzzle load as accuracy at hundred yards. If you can hit a large target at three hundred yards, then it's it's almost akin to, to hitting a target maybe 500 meters away now, you know, w without a scope. It, it's an impressive feat of marksmanship. Um, and King George is obviously impressed by this, but we don't know uh, exactly how um, that impacted on Ferguson's um, progress with getting the rifle adopted because he, at this point he's already well on his way to having the, the hundred rifles produced um, so really what, what, what happens is his, um, I guess his standing is cemented by, uh, by this and his, the patronage of, of the King is obviously much coveted. I mean, if you, if you were trying to get something adopted into service, you would definitely want the King to think, wow, this is, this is an impressive piece of kit. We need to, we need to get these into the hands of soldiers quickly. Um, and there is, um, there is mention, uh, in some sources that, uh, a stipend was given um, directly from the king to Ferguson as he was leaving for America to equip and outfit his men. Do we ever see Ferguson's gun used in the field? 
Yes. So um, in March 1777, uh, Ferguson is seconded from the 70th foot to form his own uh, rifle corps. Uh, what he's doing is he's forming a company of 100 men um, to be equipped with the first batch of rifles that have been, been produced. And he's ordered to train them and get them ready to go to America um, and join um, Lord Howe's um, army. Um, and he's rushed because the war at that point isn't going to plan for Britain. Um, there's defeats at Princeton and uh, a number of others where um, the British armies um, increasingly in need of uh, a victory. In March 1777, uh, he forms his corps. And what he's directed to do is, is train volunteers taken well, volunteers that are picked from two uh, battalions that are uh, in southern England at that time. And he takes them and he trains them. Um, but he's essentially only given around... Um, a month, maybe two months to train his men because by May 1777, he's joined uh, General Howe's army in uh, New York and he's uh, quickly engaged in the campaign uh, that would culminate in the Battle of Brandywine Creek, uh, in the Battle of Brandywine uh, Creek. Um, and that is the only, uh, the only real campaign that Ferguson and his rifle and his rifle corps the, the light infantry specially trained uh, to use them uh, actually saw action during. So um, the, predominantly, uh, the best account of the fighting we have comes from Ferguson himself. Um, and his men, being light infantry, are they're at the head of the army. They are acting as scouts. Um, they're providing a screen to the army as they advance. So during the Battle of Brandywine Creek itself, in in um, the run up to that, um, the British light infantry is uh, is fighting uh, Washington's light infantry, and they are uh, they're meeting uh, General uh, Brigadier General William Maxwell's light infantry, American light infantrymen, in the run up to the battle. Um, and it's during that fighting um, that. Ferguson's men see the thick of the action and that Ferguson's eventually himself quite badly wounded in. So Ferguson's rifle corps uh, at the head of, um, I believe, it, uh, Nymphausen's uh, column, which is uh, making a diversionary attack. Um, and they're engaged in a firefight with American light infantry. And Ferguson himself and his men are um, under fire for we. The details of the battle itself, uh, from Ferguson's point of view, um, aren't what I would I would like. So they aren't as detailed as I would like. I'd I'd, I'd like ideally to know um, who they were actually uh, facing if they if they knew what units they were facing and what kind of tactical movements they were making. But we know that they were firing from cover because Ferguson explains in a letter home to his family that many of his men went unwounded during the battle because they were lying prone on the ground or using trees. So it's really unlucky that Ferguson himself is, is one of the few casualties that are badly wounded. 
What do you think the legacy of Patrick Ferguson should be? Although his gun doesn't necessarily lead to uh, a direct sort of change the game moment, as you say, uh, today we live in a world of breech loaders. So where does he fit into the larger scheme of history? So Ferguson has this um, legacy of being um, one of history's great what-ifs. So what if his rifle had been more widely adopted? And I would say his main legacy, because really so few of his rifles were made and so few of them saw action, his real legacy is his rifle being the first breech-loading rifle adopted adopted for service by the British Army. And that's no small feat for the 18th century um, when the norm is a muzzle loader. Uh, a breech-loading rifle is a big step forward. And we wouldn't see breech-loaders in the British Army again until the mid to late 19th century. And that's that's a, a really important thing to understand that his rifle was truly groundbreaking, but he wasn't able to make the impact he hoped for because of circumstances that surrounded the way his corps was formed, trained, sent to America in a rush. They performed really well in uh, in action. Um, they are they're, they're commended in reports back um, and and comments made by. Um, General Nymphhausen. Um, but Ferguson's real legacy is melding the rifle with light infantry. So it isn't until the Napoleonic Wars later on that we see the British Army return again to the idea of, of rifles. And this time they go with the Baker rifle, which, while it isn't a breech loader, it, it, it is a rifle. And it gives British light infantry an advantage, which their French opponents didn't have because because the French didn't embrace rifle um, rifle armed light infantry and really Ferguson because he was a forward thinking um, innovator within the light infantry arm he has this legacy of bringing forward a new concept which broke the normal mold of infantry using just a, a standard muzzle loader. And had he survived longer um, and not been killed at the Battle of Kings Mountain, then perhaps, and indeed if he hadn't been wounded at Brandywine Creek is so bad and his corps had been disbanded, perhaps we would have seen a wider adoption of rifles within the British Light Infantry, which, which may have made a difference. But it's one of those great historical what-ifs. Matthew Moss? Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been great to talk to you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.